We are going to be going to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. So go ahead and open up your Bibles or get your cell phones out. That's okay. Turn to verse 1 through 18. And we're going to continue our series on the word Advent. Now at this point, you know that Advent means... The arrival, exactly, very good, very good. The arrival or the coming, and we're going to be exploring that word through the lens of the Gospel of John. But first, let's start our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you have welcomed us to this place, that you have uh, drawn our hearts and our minds to worship you in, uh, in the singing of, of, of songs that, that make your name known, Lord, and uh, in the presentation of your word, in the reading of the gospel that speaks so explicitly about your son, Jesus. God, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and allow our time to be glorifying and honoring to you. Uh, We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're going to begin going through the book of John, continuing our study in Advent. Real quick review. So, so far we have talked about the need for Advent, right? It started back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Sin came into the world, and through the first man, Adam, the entire world was uprooted. But see, with sin came a promise— that God would ultimately crush the serpent's head and that he would rescue us through this one who would come that we had been waiting for ever since. Now, Pastor Bill worked us through Scripture, all the ways in which the Old Testament directly and indirectly gives us a promise of Advent, the promise of the one who would come and rescue humanity. And then last week we spent a lot of time in silence, didn't we? The silence of Advent, this, this long period of time of waiting from all the way from Adam to Jesus, in which God's people were waiting for deliverance. And we got to take a look at what that looks like in our lives today as a church. But today we're going to talk about something specific. We're going to talk about the miracle of Advent. And I think in order to do that, we need to define our terms. We should ask ourselves, what is a miracle? Now, if we're going to define something, what do we do? We ask Siri. You guys, seriously, we we ask Siri, we open, we're Americans, we get our cell phones out, we ask Siri, hey Siri, what is a miracle? I hope it tripped some of your phones just now, that would have been funny. Listen, I, um, Google responded, of course it did, and it said, uh, a miracle is a surprising and welcome event that is not uh, explicable by nature or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be a work of divine agency. So it is a surprising and welcome event. It is a work of divine agency. Uh, Google also said that it is highly improbable, right? An extraordinary event, development, or accomplishment that brings very welcome consequences. And so miracle's not a light word. Right? It is, it is linguistically designed to attribute supernatural activity to wonderful things that are happening around us. But see, there's something strange that's going on with that word today, especially as we enter into the Christmas season. Because if you're, if you're like me and you like to turn on the Hallmark Channel, or maybe you want to you wanna go onto Netflix, Netflix and cuddle, fellas, that's it, okay? You might, <laughs> that was funny, come on, nobody laughed at that? You turn on the Hallmark Channel, you're looking at these Christmas musics and, and, and our, uh, movies, and what they do is they attribute the word miracle to some really weird things, you know? Presents appear under the tree just in time. It's a miracle! 
Suspiciously attractive girl and guy finally get together after one and a half hours. It's a miracle. The backup, backup, backup Christmas goose arrives just on time to replace the one that was accidentally burned. That is an absolute Christmas miracle. Even one of my favorite Christmas movies, okay? Miracle on 34th Street, the 1947 edition, not the 1994 edition. Um, in that film, the miracle described in the film is the girl and the guy, they get together, right? The little girl gets a new house and she has new parents and all of the criminal charges on Santa Claus are dropped. It's really weird when you put it that way, but that's exactly how the movie unfolds and it's one of my favorites. Listen, church, maybe the scenario isn't exactly that cheesy in our lives, but there is no doubt that miraculous when it comes to Christmas, has been redefined by our culture, and it no longer means highly improbable, extraordinary events and the work of divine agency. And so as we decide to look at this word Advent, we are going to commit ourselves today to recapturing a biblical understanding of the word miracle as it applies to Advent and Christmas. And we're going to do so by answering this question, what is the miracle of Christmas, okay? What is the highly improbable, extraordinary event, the work of divine agency that occurred that accurately describes the miracle of Christmas, and what exactly does it have to do with uh, us? And so go ahead, turn to John chapter 1, ver verse 1 through 18, and while you're doing that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start us today in Ephesians, because of course we are. Apostle Paul, he, he wrote to the church in Ephesus, um, he was about to write this letter in which he's describing how humanity has been redeemed. God has redeemed a people, he's redeemed a church, he is redeeming marriage, he is redeeming all of the relationships that are around us, all to reflect how it was designed to be in the beginning. And Paul, introducing himself to the Ephesians, decides to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, compose this beautiful summary of the miraculous work of God to kick all that off. And this is what he says. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, by which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, and then you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, again, to the praise of his glory. 
Now, based on our early definition, would you say that Paul is describing a miraculous work there? Yes, he is. Highly improbable, extraordinary event, the work of divine agency before the foundation of the world. And the neat thing is that this passage, when we really think about it, it compares so thoroughly with the one we're about to read in John. It lays out a pattern that we see in Scripture that proves to us that that all Scripture points to the Messiah, that it's in unity with one another. Two authors coming to the exact same conclusion. What Paul does is he tells us that God has revealed himself. The work of God was done. It was planned even before time began. It was centered on Christ, and it was known to us at the proper time, according to his will. He tells us that that God has called us to respond to that work, that God's people have heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. We have believed, and we were sealed in the Holy Spirit. And finally, he shows us that this work of grace and truth, this miraculous work, was ultimately to the praise of God's glory, that we would be able to observe the glory of God and attribute to God all honor that is due, because now we have hope and we have joy, and it is in Christ. Now, I hope you caught all that, church, but if you didn't, don't worry. Those are the three observations that we're going to work through thoroughly now in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. Now, let's acknowledge some things before we get into the text. Let's acknowledge some things regarding the book of John. Now, Gospels in general, right? Gospels are are named after the men who wrote them, but they are all about Jesus. They They are uniquely communicating truths about who Jesus is. Mark, for example... He starts his gospel by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a page turner, right? It's this distinct claim about who Jesus is, and then he shoots right to John the Baptist. He shoots right into Jesus' ministry. Now, Matthew and Luke, they take more time, don't they? They rewind the clock for us. They give us more information about Jesus, where he came from, for example, the events that surrounded his miraculous birth. And if you stick around tonight, we're going to read a portion of it. It's going to be amazing. Just a little teaser. I'm just saying, you should come back, sit in the front. That's what Keith said. Man, that was some detail. I liked that. Sit in the front, park away from the building. Then John. It's written decades after the first three Gospels. He decides not to mention a manger or wise men. He doesn't even mention a baby, does he? When we wrap our heads around what John is doing here, even though there is no mention of Mary and Joseph, there are no angels, there is no celebration of a birth, what we'll find is that John chapter 1 is one of the most Christmassy Christmas passages in the gospel. Let's read it together. This is the power of God, okay? So it's not the story. I want you to read this passage with me and hear this, if nothing else. This is what it says in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. 
and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. See, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, as I said, there are three observations hidden in there, and we're going to break it apart and look at them one by one. And that's going to help us understand why the work of God at Christmas in the Advent is a miracle. This is the first one. That was for dramatic effect. God's work is a miracle in the Advent because God has revealed himself to his creation. Finally, and fully, and in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. Do you notice what it says in John 1 as we begin? It says, in the beginning. Here's an experiment, if you want to, parents, that you can do with your kids. Um, go home today and ask them to finish the passage and say to them, in the beginning, and watch to see what they say. It's a good test. Maybe it's a little nerve-wracking to see if you've been in the Word consistently. But there's a good chance that when you say, in the beginning, they're going to complete that verse by saying, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? In fact, if, you're, if your memory is sharp, uh, when we began our Advent series at the beginning of this month, what we did was we read through Genesis 1, but then we also read through John one. Church, here we are. We're right back at the beginning. It's not a coincidence because John intentionally frames the beginning of his gospel with this, this literary mechanism that is designed to draw our minds to the creation story. Because we know when we read Genesis that in the beginning God the Father created the heavens and the earth, and we know that the earth was without form, and it was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and we know that the Spirit of God was there. He was hovering over the waters. And God said, with his words, let there be light. And there was light. And remember, the light was... Oh, come on, guys. The light was... Good. It was good. John recreates the scene in verse 1. But see, here's a fuller picture now that we have. 
We know more about what was going on in that day because he says in the beginning was the Word. Now, surprisingly, um, a lot of people want to figure out what the word means, but I, I told Keith, we were sitting in the office the other day, and I told him, uh, I'm less fascinated with the word, to be perfectly honest. What I am more fascinated with is with the word was. Thank you. See, Keith remembered. The word was, you guys. Now, if you want the full story behind that, you got to go ask uh, uh, Keith, but for the sake of our children ministry volunteers who don't want me to go on for the next two hours, what we're going to say is very smart men have translated this passage, in the beginning was the word, to more literally mean, <clears throat> when the beginning began, the word was already there. Can you imagine can you see why the word was is such a big deal? When we expand that premise to the rest of the first verse, when the beginning began, the word was already there, and the word was already with God, and the word was already God. See, Jesus is the Word. That's not a spoiler. We know that because of verse 17. We know it because of the whole Gospel of John. But what separates John's Gospel from, let's say, Matthew or Luke is that John starts Jesus' story not in the manger as though Jesus came into being. No, he starts Jesus' story in the beginning with God because he is God. As one commentator puts it, Jesus was always wasing. <laughs> it's, it is funny. You're supposed to laugh. See, and then John says, after he established that Jesus always was, that he is the Word. See, to the Hebrew that's listening to this, like, like John, they would think of the God of the Old Testament who speaks things into being. By his speech, God personally relates to his people. This is why he sends prophets, for example, and when those prophets come with the message of God, what do they say? They say, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord. And then even to the Greek, you know, the other people that John is writing to, the Gentiles of the world, they would know that the word represents the rational mind that rules the universe, right? By, by calling Jesus the word, John is asserting that the word is the source of all that is visible. And so he predates all of the material world. But more than that, more than that church, when, when we understand what the word means, when we look at the, the book of John and, and, and all of the letters that he ends up writing to the church, what we understand is, is what Jesus meant to John personally, the relationship that he had with Jesus. What does John call himself? Does anyone know? The beloved, the one that Jesus loved. He doesn't use his name. The only John in the gospel of John is John the Baptist. You ever wonder why? It's because to John, the most important thing was that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. When he speaks of Jesus, he speaks of the Son who gave himself up because God so loved the world. And when John considers the love that Christian brothers are supposed to have for one another— he compares it. He says it is reflected by the great love that Jesus showed for us in that he was willing to die for us. 
And so when we see Jesus is described as the Word, we know that it is because the Word is the communication of God, and because it is the revelation of God to humanity, and because it is the nature of love to be expressed. And so in saying that Jesus is the Word, and that the Word always was, he is communicating that in the person of Jesus Christ, God always loved us. And I'm telling you, church, as we go deeper and deeper into this letter, as we, as we look at the beginning of this gospel, the more incredible it gets. Look at what he says. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John says, by the word all things were created. But see, Jesus was not just a bystander in that action. He wasn't just waiting around for the Father and the Spirit to do all the work. See, everything that was made was made through, it was made by the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 puts it this way, For us there is one God. The Father, from whom are all things, and, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 puts it this way, But in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God reveals that Jesus was no bystander in creation. In the beginning, life and light began with the word. Let there be light was spoken by God. And the light was separated from the darkness. The words, let us make man in our image after our likeness were spoken by God. And life came to mankind. The word is at the center of creation. Life and light stand in contrast to death and to darkness. And so Jesus as the word is Jesus as life and light. And in him we have hope. And so what we're seeing at the very beginning of John is this really concise work that John is doing to express the anticipation that we have all felt since the very beginning that God would bring life to a dying world, that he would finally bring light to the darkness. Do you see the tension, church? That's starting to unfold in this passage. Do you see the tension? See, Jesus from the beginning represented the light to a dark and fallen world, which means he was the promise of true knowledge. He was the promise of moral purity that light brings. He was the promise of the light that shows the very presence of God. There is a tension that exists in this passage, and as it unfolds verse by verse, we start to feel it. He says in verse 6, there was a man sent, or man sent from God whose name was John, but see, he wasn't the light. He came to bear witness about the light, but he wasn't the light. The light's not here yet. 
Verse 9 says, the true light which gives light to everyone, the light that everyone needs, the light that everyone still needs today, it was coming into the world. Do you feel the tension, church? Where's the light? Why isn't he here yet? Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. When will they see? When will he reveal himself? But then there it is. Verse 14. Most beautiful verse. All of our hope, all of our joy, all of our longing articulated so beautifully. The Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says this, Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. See, John, Paul, the authors of Scripture, they're telling us of this tension that existed that was broken in the night that the Word became flesh. Jesus came near. That word dwelt, oh boy, that word dwelt, it literally means he pitched his tent. Now, if you're a fan of the Old Testament, you're going to know the dwelling place of God was the tabernacle. It was the temple. It was among the people of God in the wilderness. It was in the place in Jerusalem. There they went. God dwelt among his people. In the past, man, God was a mystery. You guys, even in that circumstance, he was a mystery that had not been revealed yet. Moses says in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Lord, please show me your glory. God's response, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Isaiah is taken up in a vision. He's in the throne room of God, and, and he sees God in his glory, and he hits his knees, and he says, Woe is me! I'm lost! My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts! He couldn't handle it. Even in the shroud of mystery, Isaiah becomes undone. Now, do you think John had that verse in his mind, those verses at the forefront of his thoughts as he considers what Jesus represents what his coming represented to humanity. God himself became flesh, and he pitched his tent here on earth. Do you think that's what John meant when he says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is now at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has finally made him known to us. God's work is a miracle. And we see it in the Advent because God revealed himself fully to his creation. And it had been a plan that had been waiting millennia and finally took on flesh and pitched his tent among us. And so, church, the first thing we need to ask ourselves today is, do we know the word that John speaks of here? 
Has that truth really sunk in for us that Jesus is not, or excuse me, that Christmas is not about uh, a baby coming into being, but it is about God himself taking on flesh and he doing so for your sake and for mine? Is that grace that God shows us in bringing light to the darkness, casting that light on the circumstances that we find ourselves in today? That's the challenge that we experience in our first point. This is the second. God's work is a miracle in the advent because God has called us to respond to his work. Okay? He has revealed himself to us. God has also called us to respond to his work. Pay attention to what John does starting in verse 9. It's kind of cool. He says, the true light which gives light to everyone, it was coming into the world. He was not, or he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's not a great start, okay? Considering what we just discussed, um, that we had been waiting a very, very long time for the Messiah, what is implied here is that when he finally came, with a forerunner no less, that's shouting to the mountaintops, one who comes after me, he's the one, pay attention. And yet when the time came, by all accounts, we rejected the light. That's who we are. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Because as we're reading through the Old Testament, God is constantly revealing himself and he is constantly being rejected by his own words, his own action, his own loving kindness is being spilled out towards his people. And in the Exodus and in the judges and in the kings and in the prophets, all are testifying to us that we would be more willing to worship anything we can get our hands on so long as we can bypass the relationship that God is actively working to create in our lives. We're professionals. We're professionals at ignoring and rejecting, even striking out at God where we can. But see, praise the Lord. Our passage continues today, doesn't it? He talks about it in verse 12. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, there's something we do at Christmas time, and I think it's a really good thing. We, we go to Isaiah chapter 9, okay, and we read through that together, and it's a whole lot of fun, right? We'll go to uh, Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 6, and we'll read... For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And it says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do that thing. Man, it's awesome. It's all 100% referring to Jesus. It so wonderfully shows us the power and the glory of God. And, and it shows us in the form of this child that is born, we know and celebrate on Christmas Day. But here's the thing. There is a significant event that is recorded otherwise in that passage. And if we skip right over it, man, we're missing out big time. It's in verse 2. It's the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
those who dwell in a land of deep darkness. On them the light has shone. An essential element of the story of Advent is that the light of God, the true light, John calls him, it came into the world. And the thing is, man, by, by Jesus' own testimony, this is the cool thing. Uh, we, we read through it today, and it was so beautiful. Those boys came up, and they read what? They read John chapter 3, verse 16, didn't they? For God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Boy, do we love that verse. Boy, do we love that verse. And then we don't keep reading. Jesus kept talking, didn't he? This is what he said in verse 17. He describes to us what the point of his light is. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Boy, those are terrifying words coming from the mouth of God. And this is the judgment. The light came into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, they hate the light and do not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God, by God. Here's a summary statement, just in case you got lost there. See, this is what God said. He said, this is my condemnation, what will be held against them. I sent the light, but you didn't want the light. But all who are of the light, who come to the light, and who embrace the light will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the miracle of the advent, that people who were drowning in darkness, according to Isaiah chapter 9, have seen a great light by the work of God. God has made his light to shine down on the darkness of humanity and allowed us to finally understand the true depths of our sin. But the, the, the great length also that he was willing to go to reconcile us to him because he loved us through the death of his own son. Just so that we might believe and we might be saved. The light of God came so that whoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so here we are, church. A church not born of blood, not because we had a heritage that we inherited, not by the will of uh, the flesh, by our own efforts that we could earn. It is not by the will of man. There is no indulgence, no person on earth that can say you are forgiven but Jesus. No, our salvation, it is of God. The miracle of Advent that we, uh, that we see 
is that God has revealed himself in creation, but also now he has called us to respond to that work. Now we are a people that do not hope for the Messiah. We know who the Messiah is, and we have hope for salvation in him, and now we await the day in which he will come, and he will ultimately finish that job. Friends, have you seen a great light? Have you believed in his name? Have you, have you been granted the right to be called children of God? Don't leave here today if that question is on your mind and in your heart. God's work is a miracle in the Advent because God has been revealed. God's work is a miracle in the Advent because he has called us to respond to that work. And finally, God's work is a miracle in the Advent because we have seen his glory. Man, this is a fun one. This is a real fun one. Look, this is how John concludes uh, the beginning of his gospel. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And from, uh, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, heaped up grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come only through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus has made him known. Man, church, we've been talking about it for weeks. There is a, a reality that was lost to us in the garden, was there not? See, because in the garden, when we talked about that, we were introduced to Adam and Eve, and what did they do? They, they walked with God. They walked among him, and they were exposed, and they were unashamed before God. They heard the weight of his commands to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. God told them, fill the earth. Fill it with my glory, he said. You are made in my image, he said. You carry the reflection of me to the four corners of the earth. And with the joy of that statement, not the condemnation, we, we filled the earth with the image of God together as man and woman, and we did so in his presence. Do you remember what was lost that day in the garden? When God placed his angel at the gates of Eden with a flaming sword that turned in every way to guard the tree of life and to separate us from that presence. No way back. Separated from God. Now terrified of his presence, unable to see his glory. Show me your glory, Lord. No, you cannot see my face, God told Moses, for man cannot see me and live. We lost so much that day, humanity and the earth itself began to groan for restoration. Do you see what John meant when he said he saw Jesus for the very first time? How familiar are you with the gospel of John? It says John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. John the Baptist screams out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John's head and all the guys, they're on a swivel now. Who? Wait, what? The Lamb of God? Are you kidding me? He can't even think of what to say, it says. 
They're following Jesus. It's, it's, it's almost like a stalker, but it's not. He, he was told to do it. They're following after Jesus, this one who John the Baptist has just called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus turns around and they're just starstruck. Rabbi, where are you staying? It's the only thing they could think to say. Jesus, so patient, so good. What a good shepherd. He says, come and you will see. John did see, church. Saw the miracles, people being healed, the blind seeing, demons being cast out. He saw the teachings. He heard the words that that only God himself could bring. He saw prophecies being fulfilled before his eyes. He saw the power and the glory of God himself. Man, he saw Jesus in his righteous form, a blaze of light, the sort of word that you can't even describe in the English language, standing with Moses and Elijah. Yes, the Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he saw God flogged and beaten, hanging on a cross between two criminals. The king of the Jews is the only thing they could think to write above his head. The only crime that they could think to hold against him. As all the sins that John had ever committed were nailed on the cross with his best friend. But John saw the glorious body of a victorious king, didn't he? Three days went by, and he sees the Lord, and Thomas can't even hold himself. My Lord and my God, he says. John saw that. He wrote it down. John saw the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, shining as the light of the world over a new heaven and a new earth. Behold, I am making all things new, he said. And John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God forever. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And John says, I saw the Word become flesh and dwell among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, and he is full of grace and truth. That's restoration, church. It's what he saw with his own eyes. It's what we see as we observe the first 
advent of Jesus coming as we look forward to the second advent where he will surely secure for us in the end grace heaped upon grace. We can see a reality in which through Jesus God himself has finally been named known to us. We can see him. We can understand him. We can worship him in his glory. Is that not a miracle? Is that true for you today, friend? Have you seen his glory? Christian, do you live in the light of that word? These are the questions that should be going through our minds. These are the questions we should be wrestling with in our hearts and in our homes. There was a miracle that happened in the Advent. This is why we celebrate Jesus. God has been revealed. He has made a way for us to respond and be reconciled. And we have seen his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all of the praise and the glory. By the testimony of your Spirit, we read that, that you made all things through Jesus, that you have brought light and life to this world through your Son. God, that your, that your love was poured out on us in the form of the cross that Jesus died, and when he died, our sins were nailed to the cross with Christ so that because of your great grace, by the faith that you have given us, we, will, we can believe in you, Lord, and we can have everlasting life that shows itself both in the glory of what is to come, Lord, that your word speaks so thoroughly to, but now in the way that you have restored our lives, that you have bound together this people, and that you have called us to bring glory to your name by making disciples. Lord, would you fill our hearts with that truth. If there is anyone in this room that does not know you, Lord, would you reveal fully that your son Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, would you give faith where there is none? God, in our hearts, would you restore us to a right understanding of who you are? Would you, would you reignite our desire to participate in the way that you are making all things new? Would you give our eyes clarity to see the importance of, of pursuing a lost world, even in the simplicity, Lord, of inviting someone to a Christmas Eve service? God, would you be made much of, God? Would you allow us to see your glory? We pray all these things. In your name, Jesus. Amen.